Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast about gothic literature. Join us as we listen to spooky stories and stories that I, I, I don't... Ow. This hurts my voice. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Spitzer. This is recorded at the KZOM Studios in Oleander, Oregon. This We're going to be going with uh, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. I'm not sure if we have anyone talking about this this month, but... This is gothic literature. This is one of those old school goth lit stories that, you know, this is gothic literature. So check it out. The Monk, uh, read by J.R. White. I can't remember who it is. I just edited this and heard it a billion times. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, PGTTCM.com. Rate, review, subscribe, check out the podcast, and look for us online. Recording by James K. White. The Monk, A Romance, by Matthew Gregory Lewis. Chapter 9, Part 2. So strong an impression had the specter made upon Antonia, that for the first two or three hours the physician declared her life to be in danger. The fits, at length becoming less frequent, induced him to alter his opinion, he said that to keep her quiet was all that was necessary, and he ordered a medicine to be prepared which would tranquilize her nerves and procure her that repose which at present she much wanted. The sight of Ambrosio, who now appeared with Jacinta at her bedside, contributed essentially to compose her ruffled spirits. Elvira had not sufficiently explained herself upon the nature of his designs, to make a girl so ignorant of the world as her daughter aware how dangerous was his acquaintance. At this moment, when penetrated with horror at the scene which had just passed, and dreading to contemplate the ghost's prediction, her mind had need of all the succors of friendship and religion, Antonia regarded the abbot with an eye doubly partial. That strong prepossession in his favor still existed, which she had felt for him at first sight. She fancied, yet knew not wherefore, that his presence was a safeguard to her from every danger, insult, or misfortune. She thanked him gratefully for his visit, and related to him the adventure which had alarmed her so seriously. The abbot strove to reassure her and convince her that the whole had been a deception of her overheated fancy. The solitude in which she had passed the evening, the gloom of night, the book which she had been reading, and the room in which she sat, were all calculated to place before her such a vision. He treated the idea of ghosts with ridicule, and produced strong arguments to prove the fallacy of such a system. His conversation tranquilized and comforted her, but did not convince her. She could not believe that the spectre had been a mere creature of her imagination. Every circumstance was impressed upon her mind too forcibly to permit her flattering herself with such an idea. She persisted in asserting that she had really seen her mother's ghost, had heard the period of her disillusion announced, and declared that she never should quit her bed alive. Ambrosio advised her against encouraging these sentiments, and then quitted her chamber having promised to repeat his visit on the morrow. Antonia received this assurance with every mark of joy, but the monk easily perceived that he was not equally acceptable to her attendant. 
Flora obeyed Elvida's injunctions with the most scrupulous observance. She examined with an anxious eye every circumstance likely in the least to prejudice her young mistress, to whom she had been attached for many years. She was a native of Cuba, had followed Elvida to Spain, and loved the young Antonia with a mother's affection. Flora quitted not the room for a moment while the abbot remained there. She watched his every word, his every look, his every action. He saw that her suspicious eye was always fixed upon him, and conscious that his designs would not bear inspection so minute, he felt frequently confused and disconcerted. He was aware that she doubted the purity of his intentions, that she would never leave him alone with Antonia, and his mistress defended by the presence of this vigilant observer, he despaired of finding the means to gratify his passion. As he quitted the house, Jacinta met him and begged that some masses might be sung for the repose of Elvira's soul, which she doubted not was suffering in purgatory. He promised not to forget her request, but he perfectly gained the old woman's heart by engaging to watch during the whole of the approaching night in the haunted chamber. Jacinta could find no terms sufficiently strong to express her gratitude, and the monk departed, loaded with her benedictions. It was broad day when he returned to the abbey. His first care was to communicate what had passed to his confidant. He felt too sincere a passion for Antonia to have heard unmoved the prediction of her speedy death, and he shuddered at the idea of losing an object so dear to him. Upon this head, Matilda reassured him. She confirmed the arguments which himself had already used. She declared Antonia to have been deceived by the wandering of her brain, by the spleen which oppressed her at the moment, and by the natural turn of her mind to superstition and the marvellous. As to Jacinta's account, the absurdity refuted itself. The abbot hesitated not to believe that she had fabricated the whole story, either confused by terror, or hoping to make him comply more readily with her request. Having overruled the monk's apprehensions, Matilda continued thus. The prediction and the ghost are equally false, but it must be your care, Ambrosio, to verify the first. Antonia, within three days, must indeed be dead to the world, but she must live for you. Her present illness, and this fancy which she had taken into her head, will color a plan which I have long meditated, but which was impracticable without your procuring access to Antonia. She shall be yours, not for a single night, but forever. All the vigilance of her duena shall not avail her. You shall riot unrestrained in the charms of your mistress. This very day must the scheme be put in execution, for you have no time to lose. The nephew of the Duke of Medina Celi prepares to demand Antonia for his bride. In a few days, she will be removed to the palace of her relation, the Marquise de las Cisternas, and there she will be secure from your attempts. Thus, during your absence, have I been informed by my spies, who are ever employed in bringing me intelligence for your service. Now then, listen to me. There is a juice extracted from certain herbs, known but to few, which brings on the person who drinks it the exact image of death. Let this be administered to Antonia. You may easily find means to pour a few drops into her medicine. The effect will be throwing her into strong convulsions for an hour. 
after which her blood will gradually cease to flow and heart to beat a mortal paleness will spread itself over her features and she will appear a corpse to every eye she has no friends about her you may charge yourself unsuspected with the superintendence of her funeral and cause her to be buried in the vaults of st clair their solitude and easy access render these caverns favorable to your designs give antonia the soporific draught this evening eight and forty hours after she has drank it life will revive in her bosom she will then be absolutely in your power she will find all resistance unavailing and necessity will compel her to receive you in her arms antonia will be in my power exclaimed the monk matilda you transport me at length then happiness will be mine and that happiness will be matilda's gift will be the gift of friendship i shall clasp antonia in my arms far from every prying eye from every tormenting intruder I shall sigh out my soul upon her bosom, shall teach her young heart the first rudiments of pleasure, and revel uncontrolled in the endless variety of her charms. And shall this delight indeed be mine? Shall I give the reins to my desires, and gratify every wild, tumultuous wish? Oh, Matilda, how can I express to you my gratitude? By profiting by my counsels ambrosio i live but to serve you your interest and happiness are equally mine be your person antonia's but to your friendship and your heart i still assert my claim contributing to yours forms now my only pleasure should my exertions procure the gratification of your wishes i shall consider my trouble to be amply repaid but let us lose no time the liquor of which I spoke is only to be found in St. Clair's laboratory. Hasten then to the prioress, request of her admission to the laboratory, and it will not be denied. There is a closet at the lower end of the great room, filled with liquids of different colors and qualities. The bottle in question stands by itself upon the third shelf on the left. It contains a greenish liquor. Fill a small phial with it when you are unobserved, and Antonia is your own the monk hesitated not to adopt this infamous plan his desires but too violent before had acquired fresh vigor from the sight of antonia as he sat by her bedside accident had again betrayed to him some of those charms on which his eyes had dwelt with such delight on the night of elvida's murder sometime her white and polished arm was displayed in arranging the pillow sometimes a sudden movement discovered part of her swelling bosom but wherever the new-found charm presented itself there rested the friar's gloating eyes scarcely could he master himself sufficiently to conceal his desires from antonia and her vigilant duenna inflamed by the remembrance of these beauties he entered into matilda's scheme without hesitation no sooner were matins over than he bent his course towards the convent of st clair his arrival threw the whole sisterhood into the utmost amazement the prioress was sensible of the honor done her convent by his paying it his first visit and strove to express her gratitude by every possible attention he was paraded through the garden shown all the relics of saints and martyrs and treated with as much respect and distinction as had he been the pope himself on his part 
Ambrosio received the Domina's civilities very graciously, and strove to remove her surprise at his having broken through his resolution. He stated that among his penitents, illness prevented many from quitting their houses. These were exactly the people who most needed his advice and the comforts of religion. Many representations had been made to him upon this account, and though highly repugnant to his own wishes, he had found it absolutely necessary for the service of heaven to change his determination and quit his beloved retirement. The prioress applauded his zeal in his profession and his charity towards mankind. She declared that Madrid was happy in possessing a man so perfect and irreproachable. In such discourse, the friar at length reached the laboratory. He found the closet. The bottle stood in the place which Matilda had described, and the monk seized an opportunity to fill his phial unobserved with the soporific liquid. Then, having partaken of a collation in the refectory, he retired from the convent pleased with the success of his visit, and leaving the nuns delighted by the honor conferred upon them. He waited till evening before he took the road to Antonia's dwelling. Jacinta welcomed him with transport, and besought him not to forget his promise to pass the night in the haunted chamber. That promise he now repeated. He found Antonia tolerably well, but still harping upon the ghost's prediction. Flora moved not from her lady's bed, and by symptoms yet stronger than on the former night, testified her dislike to the abbot's presence. Still, Ambrosio affected not to observe them. The physician arrived while he was conversing with Antonia. It was dark already. Lights were called for, and Flora was compelled to descend for them herself. However, as she left a third person in the room, and expected to be absent but a few minutes, she believed that she risked nothing in quitting her post. No sooner had she left the room then Ambrosio moved towards the table, on which stood Antonia's medicine. It was placed in a recess of the window. The physician, seated in an armchair, and employed in questioning his patient, paid no attention to the proceedings of the monk. Ambrosio seized the opportunity. He drew out the fatal phial, and let a few drops fall into the medicine. He then hastily left the table, and returned to the seat which he had quitted. When Flora made her appearance with lights, everything seemed to be exactly as she had left it. The physician declared that Antonia might quit her chamber the next day with perfect safety. He recommended her following the same prescription which on the night before had procured her a refreshing sleep. Flora replied that the draught stood ready upon the table. He advised the patient to take it without delay, and then retired. Flora poured the medicine into a cup and presented it to her mistress. At that moment Ambrosio's courage failed him. Might not Matilda have deceived him? Might not jealousy have persuaded her to destroy her rival and substitute poison in the room of an opiate? This idea appeared so reasonable that he was on the point of preventing her from swallowing the medicine. His resolution was adopted too late. The cup was already emptied, and Antonia restored it into Flora's hands. No remedy was now to be found. Ambrosio could only expect the moment impatiently, destined to decide upon Antonia's life or death, upon his own happiness or despair. 
dreading to create suspicion by his stay or betray himself by his mind's agitation he took leave of his victim and withdrew from the room antonia parted from him with less cordiality than on the former night flora had represented to her mistress that to admit his visits was to disobey her mother's orders she described to her his emotion on entering the room and the fire which sparkled in his eyes while he gazed upon her this had escaped antonia's observation but not her attendants who explaining the monk's designs and their probable consequences in terms much clearer than elvida's though not quite so delicate had succeeded in alarming her young lady and persuading her to treat him more distantly than she had done hitherto the idea of obeying her mother's will at once determined antonia though she grieved at losing his society she conquered herself sufficiently to receive the monk with some degree of reserve and coldness she thanked him with respect and gratitude for his former visits but did not invite his repeating them in future it now was not the friar's interest to solicit admission to her presence and he took leave of her as if not designing to return fully persuaded that the acquaintance which she dreaded was now at an end flora was so much worked upon by his easy compliance that she began to doubt the justice of her suspicions as she lighted him downstairs she thanked him for having endeavoured to root out from antonia's mind her superstitious terrors of the spectre's prediction she added that as he seemed interested in doña antonia's welfare should any change take place in her situation she would be careful to let him know it the monk in replying took pains to raise his voice hoping that jacinta would hear it in this he succeeded as he reached the foot of the stairs with his conductress the landlady failed not to make her appearance why surely you are not going away reverend father cried she did you not promise to pass the night in the haunted chamber christ jesus i shall be left alone with the ghost and a fine pickle i shall be in in the morning do all i could say all i could that obstinate old brute simon gonzalez refused to marry me to-day and before to-morrow comes i suppose i shall be torn to pieces by the ghosts and goblins and devils and what not for god's sake your holiness do not leave me in such a woeful condition on my bended knees i beseech you to keep your promise watch this night in the haunted chamber lay the apparition in the red sea and jacinta remembers you in her prayers to the last day of her existence this request ambrosio expected and desired yet he affected to raise objections and to seem unwilling to keep his word he told jacinta that the ghost existed nowhere but in her own brain and that her insisting upon his staying all night in the house was ridiculous and useless jacinta was obstinate she was not to be convinced and pressed him so urgently not to leave her a prey to the devil that at length he granted her request all this show of resistance imposed not upon flora who was naturally of a suspicious temper she suspected the monk to be acting a part very contrary to his own inclinations and that he wished for no better than to remain where he was she even went so far as to believe that jacinta was in his interest and the poor old woman was immediately set down as no better than a procuress while she applauded herself for having penetrated into this plot against her lady's honour she resolved in secret to render it fruitless 
"'So then,' said she to the abbot, with a look of half satirical and half indignant, "'So then you mean to stay here to-night? "'Do so in God's name. Nobody will prevent you. "'Sit up to watch for the ghost's arrival. "'I shall sit up too, and the Lord grant that I may see nothing worse than a ghost. "'I quit not Doña Antonia's bedside during this blessed night. "'Let me see any one dare to enter the room, and, be he mortal or immortal, "'be he ghost, devil, or man, I warrant his repenting that ever he crossed the threshold.' This hint was sufficiently strong, and Ambrosio understood its meaning. But instead of showing that he perceived her suspicions, he replied mildly that he approved the duenna's precautions and advised her to preserve in her intention. This she assured him faithfully that he might depend upon her doing. Jacinta then conducted him into the chamber where the ghost had appeared, and Flora returned to her ladies. Jacinta opened the door of the haunted room with a trembling hand. She ventured to peep in, but the wealth of India would not have tempted her to cross the threshold. She gave the taper to the monk, wished him well through the adventure, and hastened to be gone. Ambrosio entered. He bolted the door, placed the light upon the table, and seated himself in the chair which, on the former night, had sustained Antonia. In spite of Matilda's assurances that the spectre was a mere creation of fancy, his mind was impressed with a certain mysterious horror. He in vain endeavored to shake it off. The silence of the night, the story of the apparition, the chamber wainscoted with dark oak panels, the recollection which it brought with it of the murdered Elvida, and his incertitude respecting the nature of the drops given by him to Antonia, made him feel uneasy at his present situation. But he thought much less of the spectre than of the poison. Should he have destroyed the only object which rendered life dear to him? Should the ghost's prediction prove true? Should Antonia in three days be no more, and he the wretched cause of her death? The supposition was too horrible to dwell upon. He drove away these dreadful images, and as often they presented themselves again before him. Matilda had assured him that the effects of the opiate would be speedy. He listened with fear, yet with eagerness expecting to hear some disturbance in the adjoining chamber. All was still silent. He concluded that the drops had not begun to operate. Great was the stake for which he now played. A moment would suffice to decide upon his misery or happiness. Matilda had taught him the means of ascertaining that life was not extinct forever. Upon this assay depended all his hopes. With every instant his impatience redoubled, his terrors grew more lively, his anxiety more awake. Unable to bear this state of incertitude, he endeavored to divert it by substituting the thoughts of others for his own. The books, as was before mentioned, were ranged upon shelves near the table, this stood exactly opposite to the bed, which was placed in an alcove near the closet door. Ambrosio took down a volume and seated himself by the table, but his attention wandered from the pages before him. Antonia's image and that of the murdered Elvira persisted to force themselves before his imagination. Still, he continued to read, though his eyes ran over the characters without his mind being conscious of their import. 
Such was his occupation when he fancied that he heard a footstep. He turned his head, but nobody was to be seen. He resumed his book, but in a few minutes after, the same noise was repeated, and followed by a rustling noise close behind him. He now started from his seat, and, looking round him, perceived the closet door standing half unclosed. On his first entering the room he had tried to open it, but found it bolted on the inside. "'How is this?' said he to himself. "'How comes this door unfastened?' He advanced towards it. He pushed it open, and looked into the closet. No one was there. While he stood irresolute, he thought that he distinguished a groaning in the adjacent chamber. It was Antonia's, and he supposed that the drops began to take effect. But upon listening more attentively, he found the noise to be caused by Jacinta, who had fallen asleep by the lady's bedside and was snoring most lustily. Ambrosio drew back and returned to the other room, musing upon the sudden opening of the closet door, for which he strove in vain to account. He paced the chamber up and down in silence. At length he stopped, and the bed attracted his attention. The curtain of the recess was but half drawn. He sighed involuntarily. "'That bed,' said he in a low voice, "'that bed was Elvita's. There has she passed many a quiet night, for she was good and innocent. How sound must have been her sleep, and yet now she sleeps sounder. Does she indeed sleep? Oh, God grant that she may. What if she rose from her grave at this sad and silent hour? What if she broke the bonds of the tomb and glided angrily before my blasted eyes? Oh, I never could support the sight. Again to see her form distorted by dying agonies, her blood-swollen veins, her livid countenance, her eyes bursting from their sockets with pain, to hear her speak of future punishment, menace me with heaven's vengeance, tax me with the crimes I have committed, with those I am going to commit. Great God, what is that? As he uttered these words, his eyes, which were fixed upon the bed, saw the curtain shaken gently backwards and forwards. The apparition was recalled to his mind, and he almost fancied that he beheld Elvita's visionary form reclining upon the bed. A few moments' consideration sufficed to reassure him. It was only the wind, said he, recovering himself. Again he paced the chamber, but an involuntary movement of awe and inquietude constantly led his eye towards the alcove. He drew near it with irresolution. He paused before he ascended the few steps which led to it. He put out his hand thrice to remove the curtain, and as often drew it back. "'Absurd terrors!' he cried at length, ashamed of his own weakness. Hastily he mounted the steps, when a figure dressed in white started from the alcove, and, gliding by him, made with precipitation towards the closet— Madness and despair now supplied the monk with that courage of which he had, till then, been destitute. He flew down the steps, pursued the apparition, and attempted to grasp it. "'Ghost or devil, I hold you!' he exclaimed, and seized the spectre by the arm. "'Oh, Christ Jesus!' cried a shrill voice. "'Holy Father, how you gripe me! I protest that I mean no harm!' 
This address, as well as the arm which he held, convinced the abbot that the supposed ghost was substantial flesh and blood. He drew the intruder towards the table, and holding up the light, discovered the features of Madonna Flora. Incensed at having been betrayed by this trifling cause into fears so ridiculous, he asked her sternly what business had brought her to that chamber. Flora, ashamed at being found out and terrified at the severity of Ambrosio's looks, fell upon her knees and promised to make a full confession. "'I protest, Reverend Father,' said she, "'that I am quite grieved at having disturbed you. Nothing was further from my intention. I meant to get out of the room as quietly as I got in, and had you been ignorant that I watched you, you know it would have been the same thing as if I had not watched you at all.' To be sure I did very wrong in being a spy upon you, that I cannot deny. But, Lord, your reverence, how can a poor weak woman resist curiosity? Mine was so strong to know what you were doing that I could not but try to get a little peep without anybody knowing anything about it. So with that I left old Dame Jacinta sitting by my lady's bed, and I ventured to steal into the closet. Being unwilling to interrupt you, I contented myself at first with putting my eye to the keyhole, but as I could see nothing by this means, I undrew the bolt, and while your back was turned to the alcove, I whipped me in softly and silently. Here I lay snug behind the curtain till your reverence found me out, and seized me ere I had time to regain the closet door. This is the whole truth, I assure you, holy father, and I beg your pardon a thousand times for my impertinence. During this speech, the abbot had time to recollect himself. He was satisfied with reading the penitent spy a lecture upon the dangers of curiosity and the meanness of the action in which she had been just discovered. Flora declared herself fully persuaded that she had done wrong. She promised never to be guilty of the same fault again, and was retiring very humble and contrite to Antonia's chamber when the closet door was suddenly thrown open and in rushed Jacinta, pale and out of breath. "'Oh, father, father!' she cried in a voice almost choked with terror. "'What shall I do? What shall I do? Here is a fine piece of work. Nothing but misfortunes, nothing but dead people and dying people. Oh, I shall go distracted, I shall go distracted!' "'Speak, speak!' cried Flora and the monk at the same time. "'What has happened? What is the matter?' Oh, I shall have another corpse in my house. Some witch has certainly cast a spell upon it, upon me, and upon all about me. Poor Doña Antonia. There she lies in just such convulsions as killed her mother. The ghost told her true. I am sure the ghost told her true. Flora ran, or rather flew, to her lady's chamber. Ambrosio followed her his bosom trembling with hope and apprehension. They found Antonia, as Jacinta had described, torn by racking convulsions from which they in vain endeavored to relieve her. The monk dispatched Jacinta to the abbey in all haste and commissioned her to bring Father Pablos back with her without losing a moment. "'I will go for him,' replied Jacinta, "'and tell him to come hither. But as to bringing him myself, I shall do no such thing. I am sure that the house is bewitched.' and burn me if ever I set foot in it again. With this resolution, she set out for the monastery, 
and delivered to Father Pablos the abbot's orders. She then betook herself to the house of old Simon Gonzales, whom she resolved never to quit till she had made him her husband, and his dwelling her own. Father Pablos had no sooner beheld Antonia than he pronounced her incurable. The convulsions continued for an hour. During that time her agonies were much milder than those which her groans created in the abbot's heart. Her every pang seemed a dagger in his bosom, and he cursed himself a thousand times for having adopted so barbarous a project. The hour being expired, by degrees the fits became less frequent, and Antonia less agitated. She felt that her disillusion was approaching, and that nothing could save her. Worthy Ambrosio, she said in a feeble voice, while she pressed his hand to her lips, I am now at liberty to express how grateful is my heart for your attention and kindness. I am upon the bed of death, yet an hour, and I shall be no more. I may, therefore, acknowledge without restraint that to relinquish your society was very painful to me, but such was the will of a parent, and I dare not disobey. I die without repugnance. There are few who will lament my leaving them. There are few whom I lament to leave. Among those few, I lament for none more than for yourself. But we shall meet again, Ambrosio. We shall one day meet in heaven." There shall our friendship be renewed, and my mother shall view it with pleasure. She paused. The abbot shuddered when she mentioned Elvida. Antonia imputed his emotion to pity and concern for her. You are grieved for me, father, she continued. Ah, sigh not for my loss. I have no crimes to repent, at least none of which I am conscious and I restore my soul without fear to him from whom I received it. I have but few requests to make, yet let me hope that what few I have shall be granted. Let a solemn mass be said for my soul's repose, and another for that of my beloved mother. Not that I doubt her resting in her grave. I am now convinced that my reason wandered, and the falsehood of the ghost's prediction is sufficient to prove my error. But every one has some failing— my mother may have had hers, though I knew them not. I therefore wish a mass to be celebrated for her repose, and the expense may be defrayed by the little wealth of which I am possessed. Whatever may then remain, I bequeath to my Aunt Leonella. When I am dead, let the Marquis de la Cisternas know that his brother's unhappy family can no longer importune him. But disappointment makes me unjust, they tell me that he is ill, and perhaps, had it been in his power, he wished to have protected me. Tell him, then, father, only that I am dead, and that if he had any faults to me, I forgave him from my heart. This done, I have nothing more to ask for than your prayers. Promise to remember my request, and I shall resign my life without a pang or sorrow." Ambrosio engaged to comply with her desires, and proceeded to give her absolution. Every moment announced the approach of Antonia's fate. Her sight failed, her heart beat sluggishly, her fingers stiffened and grew cold, and at two in the morning she expired without a groan. As soon as the breath had forsaken her body, Father Pablos retired, sincerely affected at the melancholy scene. On her part, Flora gave way to the most unbridled sorrow. 
far different concerns employed Ambrosio, he sought for the pulse, whose throbbing, so Matilda had assured him, would prove Antonia's death but temporary. He found it. He pressed it. It palpitated beneath his hand, and his heart was filled with ecstasy. However, he carefully concealed his satisfaction at the success of his plan. He assumed a melancholy air, and addressing himself to Flora, warned her against abandoning herself to fruitless sorrow. Her tears were too sincere to permit her listening to his counsels, and she continued to weep unceasingly. The friar withdrew, first promising to give orders himself about the funeral, which, out of consideration for Jacinta, as he pretended, should take place with all expedition. Plunged in grief for the loss of her beloved mistress, Flora scarcely attended to what he said. Ambrosio hastened to command the burial. He obtained permission from the prioress that the corpse should be deposited in St. Clair's sepulchre, and on the Friday morning, every proper and needful ceremony being performed, Antonia's body was committed to the tomb. On the same day, Leonella arrived at Madrid, intending to present her young husband to Elvira. Various circumstances had obliged her to defer her journey from Tuesday to Friday, and she had no opportunity of making this alteration in her plans known to her sister. As her heart was truly affectionate, and as she had ever entertained a sincere regard for Elvira and her daughter, her surprise at hearing of their sudden and melancholy fate was fully equalled by her sorrow and disappointment. Ambrosio sent to inform her of Antonia's bequest. At her solicitation he promised, as soon as Elvida's trifling debts were discharged, to transmit to her the remainder. This being settled, no other business detained Leonella in Madrid, and she returned to Cordoba with all diligence. End of chapter 9, part 2 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.